we look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, uh, beginning uh, with verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in, the air, in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your sons, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land for the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word uh, this morning. Well, we come to an important moment in our sermon series of Exodus. In fact, in our sermon series of Exodus on the front cover, it says Exodus chapters 1 through 20, and today we arrived at 20. Uh, we, we are at the end of this sermon series, and it's really kind of a big deal because both literally and figuratively, Exodus chapter 20 is the high point of the entire book of Exodus. It is the place in which there on the top of Mount Sinai, God gives His Word. In fact, this is really kind of a big deal because what we have here is that we have the Word of God literally carved in stone. God says, these are my words. And what we find out in the rest of the text is not only does God speak these words to Moses, but in whatever way is beyond our understanding, God takes his own hand and he writes these words and says, this is my word to you. This is my word to you for life. This is foundational to who you're going to be. It's such an important place. It is the revealing of the Word of God. But there's also this wonderful moment that for Moses, his arrival there on Mount Sinai is really a big deal. Because if you remember months ago in our story, months ago of our understanding of the book of Exodus, that, that Moses had wandered around until he had found, until he well, he, he wasn't looking, <laughs> but the Spirit of God appeared to him in that burning bush. 
And that Spirit of God told him all the things that he was supposed to do. And Moses says, are you sure? And God gives to Moses several pieces of evidence. But the final piece of evidence that God gives to Moses is that one day he is going to be standing in that same spot when all of these promises are fulfilled. That spot is right here at Mount Sinai. Moses' return there is again a moment for him to look back and say, God has kept all of these promises. And as meaningful as that moment where he heard the word of God from the burning bush, he now hears the word of God again that gives him the law that he provides to Moses. It's a really big deal. And in fact, we still talk about this moment, and we still talk about these words of God that he's given to us carved in stone. And so we come this morning to think about these commandments. There are a handful of different ways for us to approach these commandments, and it's kind of a challenge this morning uh, to try to cover all ten commandments at one time, but that's the kind of guy that I am. Uh, we're we're going to try to hit these this morning, but we're also going to look at some other aspects of this. So as we come to these words of God carved in stone, one of the things that we need to do is that, that we should appreciate the greatness of these words. We should appreciate the greatness of the law. Now, there's a couple of things for us to try to understand as we, we move forward here, is that there's really, we're, we're, we're using the word law and commandments in a couple of different ways. When you take a look at Exodus chapter 20, and really Exodus chapter 20, and for the next 10 chapters or so, what we have here in just the verses that we led this morning is what we like to call the Ten Commandments. The ten words. But if you see here, as soon as you get past these ten words, these ten commandments, there is chapter after chapter after chapter that says laws about this and laws about this. And so when we look at it, what we see immediately is here are the ten commandments. But at the same time, there are, some people have counted them, and you can count them in different ways, but some people have counted them and said there's a total of 613 commandments. Remember when you were a kid, you had to memorize the Ten Commandments? Man, aren't you glad you weren't in one of those churches that you had to memorize the 613 commandments? That's an awful lot of things. So the relationship is that when we talk about the law, we are talking about the Ten Commandments, and we are talking about all of the rest of the things that God says in these chapters that follow. Basically, when you take a look at the Ten Commandments, they are a summary. They are an introduction. They are an orientation for all of the rest of it. It gives you the high points. Here are the things that value most, and then the rest of the law, the rest of the commandments, follow inside of specific application of all of these laws. Now, when we take a look at these commandments, and it's kind of hard for you to see up there, but you've probably heard these before, you can divide the Ten Commandments into two different sections. There are the commandments that are related to God. They th say, you shall have no gods before me. You shall make no graven or crafted images. You shall not take God's name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This division of the Ten Commandments that point to and apply to the things of God are really, really important because it lays the foundation for our worship life. It says, listen, 
I am not one of many gods. I am to be first inside of your life. I am the first priority, the first obligation that you have in your life. I come first. And he talks about the importance of no graven images because one of the things about a graven image is, is that a graven image is something I can make. And that completely reverses the work of God. We don't make our gods. God makes us. We are the product. He is not the product. And any time in which we create a God that we can stick in our pocket, then we have misunderstood who God is. He tells us, do not use my name in vain. And we're pretty familiar with that because sometimes it gives us great disturbance in us when we hear somebody use the name of God in some way as a curse word. But I would also tell you that when God says, do not use my name in vain, he is also talking about, listen, don't quote me about things that I never said. Don't put your opinion someplace and say, this is what God said. Don't just stick my name everywhere because the name of God, the name of anyone is a statement of authority. And God says, listen, don't you use my name to accomplish your agenda. That's taking the name of God in vain. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Set aside part of your life. Rearrange your routines because of who I am, and because of your God. You see, one of the things that the commandments are telling us is, listen, this is the life that you would live without God, but because God is here, because God is real, because God is your God, because God is my God, I'm going to live my life differently. The Sabbath is one of those places where we change our routine because of the presence of God. These four statements, these four commands, are the commands that relate to God himself. But I would also say that all of these things relate to God, obviously, because I think one of the things that's happening here on Mount Sinai is that God is saying to the people, this is who I am. In fact, you see that there at the beginning of verse 20. It says, God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, I believe that one of the things that needs to be happening here at the Ten Commandments and at this moment on Mount Sinai is that the people had seen the things that God could do. But they did not yet know who God was. And when as he reveals these commandments, these priorities, these expectations, he is saying, listen, I know that I can do, you know that I can perform these miracles. You know that I can achieve these things. But now that we have a moment, let me tell you about who I am. The second half or the second division of the commandments are the commandments that relate to the world around us. Honor your father and your mother. I think it's important to notice there that it says father and mother in a culture that would have only thought about fathers and patriarchs. But early on here it says that honor your father and your mother. It says no murder, no adultery, 
No stealing. No false witness. No lying. Number 10 there is no coveting. It talks about coveting all the things that your neighbor has. I think in studying that this week, one of the things that I probably hadn't understood, that when it's talking about coveting here, it may even be a better way to describe it as scheming, plotting. This isn't just an idea of looking across your neighbor's fence and say, boy, I'd like their car. But it's like, listen, if I were to do this, and I were to do this, then I could get their car. So it's not the same thing as punch you in the nose and steal it from you. But it's plotting. It's scheming. I said, I want their stuff so bad, I'll do whatever I can to get it. These Ten Commandments are so foundational for life. The truth is, when we take a look at these Ten Commandments, uh, one of the things that we can say is, man, if everybody would live with these Ten ten Commandments, it would be a different world, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a fantastic thing if we could live under all of these commandments, if everyone else that I ever met this week, if everyone that I came in contact this week, if they would live the Ten Commandments, man, how great would that be? In fact, if we lived in a country where every single person lived under the Ten Commandments, wouldn't that be fantastic? And it's true. Because this is God revealing his character. God is is revealing to us, this is up, this is down, this is valuable, this is disvaluable. This is who I am, and this is the way that you should live. And so because of this, we need to be excited, and we need to honor and value and appreciate the greatness of these words. But at the same time, But at the same time, we must beware of the dangers of the law. At the same time, we must beware of the dangers of the law. Now, this sounds kind of strange for me to say. One of the things that we would say is, it would be great if everyone that I knew, if everyone in our nation, if everybody in the world, if everybody in my house would live by the Ten Commandments. It's not easy, though. I think we can look at it and say, well, I wish those folks over there, no offense, Oregon side, if those folks over there would live by the Ten Commandments. And and sometimes we don't give it as much of attention to my need to live by the Ten Commandments. I need to make these things true in my life. Now, in Jesus' day, there were a group of people that were committed above all things to living under the law. They were committed above all things to live under the commandments. And in fact, they didn't just hit the Big Ten. They hit the 613. They hit all of them. And it was their whole life goal. They had disciplined themselves in every way possible to try for every waking moment to be obedient to the law, to the commandments, to the Word of God. You've heard of this group. They were called Pharisees. And the reason why you've heard of this group is because Jesus and this group 
would run into each other. And most of the conflict around Jesus' time was this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were hyper-committed to being obedient to the law. Now, how is it that this group of people that were hyper-obedient and doing everything they could to be obedient to the law, how is it that they would run into difficulty with Jesus when they met Jesus? Jesus is perfection under the law. He is the definition of the law. So how is it that they would run into each other? The issue is the law by itself is not enough. And in fact, the pursuit of the law, the technical pursuit of the law, can sometimes lead you in the wrong direction. That's a strange thing to say. But the Pharisees were committed and said, listen, if we do all of these things, then we will be right before God. Jesus speaks to the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really a commentary on the law. Jesus says, you have heard it said. And he would list a commandment. You, you have received this commandment from God. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. And what Jesus says is, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, but if you look at a woman in lust, then you are guilty. You are guilty of breaking that command. But I didn't do it. Jesus tells us that it's not just the actions that we do or don't do, but Jesus tells us, that God puts an x-ray over our lives and reveals the depth and the heart of who we are. And so it comes to the place that we can't smuggle things in with God. We're on the outside. We look like we're being obedient. On the outside, we're pursuing the law of God. But on the inside, on the inside, our actions may go one direction, but our heart is going another direction. And what Jesus says is, listen, it's not just your actions, but it's also your heart. So how are you doing on the 10? You've heard it said, do not kill. But when you see somebody on TV or in real life and say, boy, I could wring their neck. Jesus says you broke the commandment. The x-ray of your heart says that you have broken the commandment. A lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, I've kept all the commandments. Really? And Jesus tells him a story that reveals the one commandment that he has not kept. The disciples look at these kinds of moments with Pharisees, godly people, people who they've watched all of their lives striving to keep the law, people that they thought were, were the, the, the rock stars of spirituality. And Jesus says, no, they missed it. The disciples sometimes get discouraged. The disciples say, well, if they can't make it, how are we ever going to make it? 
In fact, the Apostle Paul describes his own struggle, his own journey with the law. At the end of Romans chapter 7, he begins to fall into deep despair where he says, the things that I'm supposed to do, he says, I don't do them. And the things that I'm not supposed to do, no matter how hard I try, I do them. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. You see, one of the things is the danger of the law is that it's the beginning and not the end. I like a good trip. I like a good tour. Imagine if we decided to go on a trip together and we decided to do a tour of the Atchafalaya Basin or maybe a, a tour of the Everglades, we used to drive across Alligator Alley and count all the alligators on the side of the road. We thought it was just a name. No, 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 no. It, it's their road. Uh, it, it belongs to them. But imagine signing up for a tour group that says, tour group to the middle of the Atchafalaya Basin. And you get to the Atchafalaya Basin and the tour leader says, I'm out. And he leaves you there. You got there. You got to see amazing things. Oh, but you don't want to live there. No offense if you've got a cousin who lives in the basin. You don't want to live there. Imagine a journey as exquisite, as amazing as a trip to the moon where you get to see the earth rise and you get to be someplace where so few people have ever been. And again, that lunar lander just takes off. Like, wait! <laughs> you can't leave me here. It's amazing. But it's not sustainable. You can't live here. I want you to notice where we find the law. I want you to notice, just pick up your Bible and take a look at where you are in this moment. You're this many pages in. There are this many pages to go. The law is the beginning. The law reveals the character of God. But it is the beginning. It is not the destination. And if we come to the place where as believers we make so much of the law, whether it be the 10, whether it be the 613, whether it be the ones that we've written for ourselves, then we will find ourselves living in a place that is unsustainable and that you cannot live. If you are a person who has not found faith in Christ, you may be like either those Pharisees or you may be like Paul who used to be a Pharisee who says, I'm going to try harder tomorrow than I tried today to get it all right. I'm going to work hard. Oh, I'm going to get up earlier. I'm, I'm going to motivate myself. I'm going to punish myself when I get it wrong. I'm going to work harder every single day to get it right. And yet something about that process moves you further and further away from Jesus. It's a strange thing. The law is great. 
The law is good. The law is revealing of the character of God. And yet the law can be a dangerous halfway point that leaves you in an unsustainable, unlivable place. Well, how do we resolve this? Well, we don't. We look to the Word that explains it to us. If you take a look, the third thing that I want you to see is that we need to let the law do its greatest work. We need to let the law of God do its greatest work. Again, this struggle between the laws from God, it must be great, it must be good, and it is. But when we confuse the law for the end of the journey, then it creates all kind of difficulty for us. In fact, some of the earliest churches, now they weren't always shaped like this, but there were groups of people who were following Jesus, sat in each other's living room and, and tried to follow God. And they began to have this struggle with what do we do with the law? And some of them came to the idea that said, if we want to please Jesus, if we want to know God, we've got to follow the 10, we've got to follow the 613. And in fact, this wasn't just Jewish folks, these were people who were Gentiles that came along. They were people who had never met a Pharisee who wanted to be a Pharisee. And so Paul has to write to these churches and says, man, I've been where you are. I have struggled with what you're struggling with. Let me explain to you what the law is supposed to do. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 23 through 26. This is just one segment in a whole section in Galatians. Because the book of Galatians is all about <laughs> don't let the law take you to a dead end spot. But this is the summary that I love. It says, now before faith came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law holds us in captivity. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we, you are all sons of God through faith. You see, the translation here says that the law is a guardian. Some of you may have been a guardian for somebody in your life. Something happened to them where you were to be the person who was their protector. Some other translations refer to this as a, as a schoolmaster. Some others refer to this kind of as a, as a tutor, a person who you could almost say this as a coach. There's a, a short-term period of time in which they help mold, shape, inform, and direct that individual so that they can be equipped for what happens next. I want you to know that the law is that guardian, that schoolmaster, that coach, that tutor, that protector, that informer. The law tells us who God is. 
The law tells us what is up and what is not up. The law tells us about the character of God. The law reveals to us that we do not meet his expectations. The law tells us who God is, tells us what we need to do, and reveals to us the fact that we are unable to do it ourselves and leaves us with a sense of, now what do I do? And then comes Jesus, who is the perfection of the law. And we put our faith in Him, that I don't come to know God because I have mastered the law. I don't come to know God. I don't receive acceptance from God because I've gotten 614 or 612 out of 613 commandments right. Because I've gotten a streak of 27 days without breaking any of the Ten Commandments. We come to know Him because Jesus is our substitute. It's not your obedience. It's not your perfection. It's Jesus. And we place our faith in Jesus. This is so important because going forward, it is impossible for you to live perfectly under the law. As good as the law is, as right as the law is, it is impossible for you to start today and get it right. But even if you could, even if you could, if November the 27th was the day that you started perfection, what are you going to do about yesterday? What are you going to do about some of those days that you weren't trying so hard? What are you going to do with some of those days that you tried really hard and you still failed? What are you going to do with those days that you didn't fully understand? You see, the law gives no pathway for you to recover. It just tells you the scoreboard and says you missed it. But Jesus comes. The law exists to point us to Jesus as that answer. The law exists to say, you know what you need? You need a Savior. You know what you need? is someone who can do the things that you cannot do for yourself. So what does this mean in our lives today? Well, we are grateful for the law because it tells us who God is. It tells us what's up. It tells us what's right. We'd be lost like a compass without a north without that. But I want you to know that you stand before God not because of your efforts at perfection, but because of the finished work of Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ, you've already asked Him to be your forgiveness, to be your Master, your Lord, your Savior. I want you to hear these words because there can still be inside of us. Yes, I know that I have Jesus, but now I need to add perfection. And we can live as though we are 
we are living on a treadmill that's been turned up way too fast. I've got Jesus, but I need my perfection. I need my perfection. I'm not telling you to live sloppy lives. But you're not chasing perfection. Jesus lives inside of you. He is your perfection. And so I don't want you to live a life of discouragement and guilt about all of the places where you have failed. Confess those. You hand them back to Him. But your status before Him does not depend on your perfection. Now, if you're a person who's here today who's had spiritual curiosity all of your life, and you know that you'd like to be more spiritual, you'd like to be closer to God, you know that you would want your life to be just more right. And the only path that seems to have made sense to you is just try a little harder. If you've messed some stuff up, go out of your way to do something extra good. And just to try to make all of your goods outnumber your bads. Man, I want you to know not only is there a better way, but there's only one way. And that is for that law to point you to Jesus and for you to discover, I can't do this, but to know that Jesus has already done it.